if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. This morning, I want to to speak to the subject of simply responding to Jesus. We've had opportunities to respond to Jesus, uh, even this morning in small group, as we heard the Word of God uh, taught, and you guys discussed it. It's an opportunity to respond to that. We've had opportunities uh, this past week as we attended and and participated in that summit conference that we held for a, a number of days, and God spoke to many of your lives and and you responded in faith, you responded in repentance, you responded in new commitments and fresh commitments to the Lord. Many of you attended that maybe even this morning or this past week during your own devotional time. The Lord spoke to you in a certain way and you responded not positively, but you responded negatively. And so we respond to the Lord on an ongoing basis. You might know this name or maybe you don't know this name, but there was a guy in Scotland Back in the 19th century, his name was William Patton McKay. He was a 17-year-old young man. He lived with his mom just outside of Edinburgh. And he was about to head off to the university. As he began to prepare to to move off to the university and and to study, his mother gave him a gift that he really found to be ridiculous. He was a typical uh, teenage young man. He uh, liked certain things, didn't like other things. And so the gift that his mom gave him, he kind of just regarded as a ridiculous gift. Uh, The gift that she gave him, hopefully we wouldn't say is ridiculous, but it was a Bible. She gave him a Bible as he headed off to the university, and inside the flap of that Bible, on the very first page, uh, she wrote his name in her handwriting, and under his name, she wrote out a verse of Scripture. Then she listed several other references to other Scriptures below it. Well, William went off to the university. He immediately made all kinds of friends. He fell right into the social structure of the university. He loved that scene. In fact, he became enamored with drinking and partying and just kind of just living it up during that first year of university, the college. In fact, he gave himself to that lifestyle. He really nearly drank away his opportunity to graduate and to make something of his life. He got to the place that he had exhausted all of his resources, had really virtually no money left to live on. In fact, it got so bad that he actually took that Bible that his mom gave him as he headed off to the university and pawned it for enough money to buy his next drink. He was so engrossed with that scene and that lifestyle that he nearly flunked out the first year of school. Well, thankfully, his grade report kind of brought him to his senses and began to realize that he had to take control of his life. And so he put aside or put off that lifestyle and devoted himself to his education and to making something of himself. He realized that, hey, if I flunk out of this, all of my dreams, all of my aspirations to make something great of myself will come to nothing. And so he decided to leave that lifestyle. He graduated with uh, honors from the university. He went off to medical school and then graduated as a medical doctor and took his first job working in the city hospital there in Edinburgh. William, however, was a lost man. Now, I'm not necessarily saying lost spiritually. Those that carry on with the story, you'll see that he was a man who was lost spiritually. But he really was a man who was lost on every level. He had no feelings for people. He really, as a doctor, could care less about the welfare of others. He really only went into medicine to make money. 
And so this was a man, a young doctor, who was short, he was snappy, he was harsh with his patients and his staff. He cared nothing about his patients' feelings. He had terrible bedside manners, and he had nothing, uh, no concern whatsoever with seeing his patients cured from their ailments. He literally just wanted to make money and have a good time. Sound like your doctor? Hopefully not. One day, as Dr. McKay was making his rounds at the hospital there, he walked into a patient's room who was dying. He was on duty, so he examined this man and quickly realized there was nothing that could be, nothing he or anyone else could do for him. So in his, uh, in his cold demeanor, he looked at the man and says, you're dying, and there's nothing I can do to help you. Well, the man heard this statement, and I think the man probably knew where he was and what was going on in his life, and he immediately responded, get me my book. I need you to get me my book. He just kept going on and just screaming and yelling out, I need my book. Get me my book. Get me my book. Well, the doctor didn't know how to take this. He looked at him with disbelief. He turned to the nurse, and they kind of just locked eyes, and they're hearing this man scream over and over again, I need my book. Get me my book. And so they looked at each other, shrugged their shoulders, and walked out of the room. Later that day, After making all of his rounds, Dr. McKay began to think about the man and what had happened earlier in that hospital room. He wondered if he was still alive. And so he he stopped back by the room just to check on him, just to see if he was alive. And he walked in. He finds the man dead. He was extremely curious about the whole situation, why he kept asking and demanding this book rather than asking for people. I mean, it just it, it, it dumbfounded him why he wasn't in the statement that he'd heard, asking to see his wife, see his family, see a friend. But over and over again, he asked for a book. And so he was so curious about that, he began to look around the room, seeing if he could find this book. Couldn't find it on any shelf or anything like that. So he pulls back the sheets, laid over this dead man, and there down by his hand, he finds the book. It's a Bible. He pulls the Bible away from his hands. He opens it up. He looks at the first page or two, and he finds on that first page of the Bible a name. William Patton McKay. Name written in a handwriting that he recognized. It was his mom's. It was the very Bible that years earlier he had taken to the pawn shop to get just enough money to buy his next whiskey drink. He's just blown away by this, and so he takes the Bible with him. He goes to his office, and for the rest of the evening and on into the night, William Patton McKay looks at this Bible, and he begins with the verse that she had written out under his name, and he began to read that over and over again. Then he went and found all of those references that she had listed underneath that verse of Scripture, and he studied all of that all throughout the night. And as he did that, the very Bible that his mom had given him going off to university, expecting and wanting and praying that he would read, which he never did, God used to bring him under deep conviction, so much so that he responded that night in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. It changed his life. In fact, it changed his life so much so that he took out a piece of paper and he wrote these words on it. He said, we praise thee, O God, for the son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Revive us again. 
You know, that song, Revive Us Again, which we sing from time to time here, has been a great hymn of the church for over 150 years. But I want you to think about that song and where it came from and who penned it. A song that we love, a song that we worship through, a song that we celebrate the glory and the grace of God. As a result of, we would not have it today if it were not for William Patton McKay responding in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ through a Bible that his mom had given him. Years, years earlier. We all respond to Jesus. And as we come to the text that we're going to look at this morning, we see a man and a woman responding to Jesus. Did you know that every one of us respond to Jesus? Every one of us respond to Jesus in at least one of two ways. There might be other ways, but if you boil it down, we respond to Jesus in one of two ways. And that's what we see on display right here in Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bible and you have your place, let's begin reading in verse 36, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Luke says this, One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As we've been walking you through Luke chapter 7, I told you back in August as we began this chapter that... Luke here is depicting for us, laying out for us, five scenes, five uh, pictures of Jesus, uh, five opportunities for us to see who Jesus is, and subsequently, we also see how people responded back to Jesus. Now, we come to the fifth and the final scene here in this chapter, and what we see on display is Jesus visiting a Pharisee's house, a man named Simon. And there in this, sin, or there in this house for this Pharisee is a sinful woman who's come, and she washes the Lord's feet with her hair and her tears. What we see here is these two individuals, completely different people, responding completely different to Jesus. 
Now, it's no way for us to know exactly why Simon invited Jesus to come and to have a meal with him. We don't know the reason for that. It's possible that he might have extended this invitation because Jesus had preached in the synagogue. And so this would have been an honorable, this would have been an admirable way or reason for uh, Jesus to have been invited. It would have been customary for the resident preacher to invite the traveling preacher to come and to share a Sabbath meal. Whatever the reason... What we see is Simon's hospitality was overshadowed by a very nasty animosity toward the Lord. You see, he purposely omitted many of the common courtesies that would have been afforded any dinner guest, despite who the person might have been. Normally, the host placed his hand on the guest's shoulder and gave him the kiss of peace. But as Jesus says, that was never done for him. As a rule, a guest's sandals were removed and his feet were washed when he entered the home or or while he reclined at the table during the meal. But as Jesus makes clear, nothing like that happened for Jesus. They were left embarrassingly dirty. Dinner guests were also anointed with a touch of olive oil. But for Jesus, there was no such kindness given or offered to him. Instead, Simon treated Jesus with a callous and a very calculated contempt. He carefully avoided every custom that would have made the Lord feel welcome in his home. And every guest and every spectator who came by that evening recognized the disrespect and the mockery that Simon offered Jesus. As we read this and we see where all this is taking place, it leads us to believe and understand that Simon was of a level of wealth to give him the type of house for something like this to take place. So this woman of the city who comes in to this courtyard helps us understand the type of house that Simon had. Many of the homes of that level of of wealth would have been built with a courtyard in the middle or the center. And on special occasions like this, the doors were open, which makes no sense to us in the Western world, but it allowed for the common people, the townspeople who were not the invited guests to come and to have a look-seat. And so they would come in and out, they would observe for a little bit, then they would go on their way. They just wanted to see who the traveling rabbi was and what the conversation was like. And so on this particular night, in this meal, one of the onlookers who comes, Luke tells us, is this woman of the city, a woman that Simon labels as a sinner. So we see two responses. One is a right way and the other is a wrong way of responding to Jesus. I want us to look at these. There's four subpoints, four adverbs that describes the way in which each of them respond. And I want us to look at these this morning as quickly as I can. I got till what? 12, 15? Till we got to go? Okay. Number one, the right way. The right way. Luke tells us that the woman of the city responded rightly to Jesus. How do we know all this? How do we know she responded to Jesus? Well, first of all, we recognize that her presence and actions surprised everyone, as we see in verse 37. It says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. See, Simon and his guests were appalled by her presence and her ministry to the Lord. But the woman, however, didn't care anything about that. The woman wasn't concerned about what they might have said or what they were thinking. Her concern was Jesus. She was there for Jesus. Her focus was Jesus. Her care was Jesus. She was there in response to what she had seen in Jesus. 
Now, more than likely, I believe this woman had heard the Lord preach. She had heard his words. They had touched her heart. And so through his powerful but gracious words, she realized her sinfulness. You know, most of us, if not all of us, don't need a lot of nudging to recognize our sinfulness. Right? Most of the time, we realize we're falling short in a lot of areas. Now, we try to cover that up. We try to make it look good. But when we're alone, when we're all by ourselves, we usually know our sin. So this woman didn't need to be convinced of a lot knowing that she was a sinner. She recognized that, but the Lord's gracious words brought that to a level where she began to understand it for what it really is. So when she heard that Jesus was at Simon's house that evening, she could not help but to come by and to see the Lord once again. I believe she hoped for an opportunity to serve him as an act of gratitude for the new life that she'd experienced in him. There she walked in, and she saw Jesus reclining at the table. She took notice of everything that was there, everything that was going on. She knew the customs. She knew how people were to be treated. And she sees Jesus reclining at the table on his left arm. All of them kind of reclined, laying next to the table as they did in that day and in that culture. And Jesus' feet are the only ones that are dirty. And in her gratitude and in her heart that wants to respond to Jesus, she's overwhelmed by that, and she comes to serve the Lord. She approaches him to wash his feet. There's four adverbs that describe her response, her right response to the Lord. First of all, she responded honestly. As she came before the Lord Jesus, she responded honestly. Honestly, Again, we go back to how Luke describes her, how Simon describes her. This woman is a sinner. Most scholars and commentators, both ancient and modern, would agree on what this means. They would tell us that this is speaking of the fact that she's more than likely a prostitute. She's a woman of the street. She's a harlot. That's her lifestyle. Now, whether she chose that lifestyle or, or because of circumstance she was thrust into that lifestyle, nonetheless, she is a prostitute which means in that culture, she's an outcast on all levels. So she's a sinner. She's separated from God. Now, we should not associate this woman with Mary Magdalene, which we're going to see introduced in chapter 8, verse 2. We shouldn't uh, associate her with Mary of Bethany in Mark chapter 14, who, who anoints the Lord's head in a very similar setting. But this is a different woman. This is a woman who's unnamed in Scripture. But she comes and she serves and she ministers to the Lord. And more than anything, she honestly responds to the Lord about her life. People knew who she was, Simon knew who she was, Jesus knew who she was, and she knew who she was. She knew she was a sinner in need of forgiveness and new life. And so on this evening, this woman didn't dress in a way to hide herself. That's what I want you to notice here. Luke doesn't tell us anything about how she dressed, but he does tell us that everybody recognized her, which means she didn't wear a mask. It means that she didn't put on some sort of facade. She didn't play a different role. She came as she was, honestly before the Lord, and served him. As we respond to the Lord, we have to respond honestly. We have to respond with confession. You see, what is confession? Confession is just you simply agreeing with God about what your sin is. It's you agreeing with God when he says, this is wicked, this is evil, this separates you from God. That's you saying, yes, my lifestyle, the things that I do, they are wicked and evil and they separate me from God. That's what confession is. She was honest in her approach to the Lord. 
And this is the right way to respond to Jesus. It's the right way to respond to the gospel. Think about how, how or why would we do otherwise? We are creatures of the one who knows everything about our lives. Our creator knows the end and the beginning. He knows everything we do. He knows the thoughts we think. As I was reading the text here, I'm not even going to draw it out in the, in the sermon, but as I was reading the text just a moment ago, it dawned on me that when Simon says this about the woman, he doesn't say it out loud for others to hear it. But the Lord heard it. So why would we not respond honestly to the Lord? Second response, second way she responded. She responded boldly. Luke tells us in verse 38 that she approached Jesus standing behind him at his feet. And so just imagine there's a table that's really short. It's on the floor. They're all kind of in a circle, laying, reclining around it. And she approaches Jesus from behind at his feet. She had come there to minister to him. She had come there to worship him. She was not satisfied with simply staying in the crowd. She was not satisfied with being a closet believer, but instead she boldly approaches Jesus. What does Hebrews 14, 4, 16, I should say. What does Hebrews 4, 16 tell us? He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, we learn from this woman that we should boldly draw near to Christ, knowing that in his presence is where we find grace, knowing that in his presence is where we find forgiveness. Boldness means we do not fear what others might think or what they may say. It means we want to publicly identify with Jesus. And it's Jesus who said in Matthew 10, So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It is important that we boldly and even publicly respond to Jesus. There are no closet Christians. There are no, I'm just going to live my life of faith in the background. No, this woman stepped out from the crowd, a sinner, everyone knew who she was, and she came to Jesus boldly. Why do we give a public response time every Sunday, it's an opportunity for you and I to publicly respond. Now, you don't have to come down here and, and we turn you around and say, so-and-so's dealing with this today. No, it's an opportunity for you to just publicly just kneel and say, Lord Jesus, this is what's going on in my life. It's just you and him or you and someone else praying together. But it's an opportunity for us to respond. We must always respond to the word of God that he's giving us in our lives, whether that's for salvation or sanctification as a Christian. Thirdly, she responded humbly. Luke tells us that weeping, she began to wet his feet with her hair or with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet. Now, in our American Western mind, this whole picture really is hard for us to grasp. I've never been in a dinner setting at someone's house where somebody walked in and off the street and took my shoes off my feet and began to wash them, much less cry over them. First of all, I'm not Jesus, so I don't expect that to really happen. But I've never been in a setting like that, right? It's just weird. It's, it's hard for us to grasp. But this is what takes place here. She comes humbly before the, before the Lord. Everything she did was socially unacceptable. For instance, servants are the one who washed the feet of those who were the guests in the homeowner's house. Along with that, women did not approach or touch other men in that culture. They doubly did not approach or touch a rabbi. And especially, 
Women did not let their hair down in the presence of another man. You see, a woman would only let her hair down in the presence of her own husband. That's the culture in that day. And so for this woman to let her hair down, to wipe the feet of Jesus, according to the Talmud, was on par with her taking her top off. Pardon the expression this morning, but I just want you to grasp the magnitude of what she was doing. It wasn't that she was being vulgar. It was that this was all she had to wipe Jesus' feet. I don't believe she came there that day to to clean his feet. I believe she brought the alabaster jar, the ointment there, to anoint the feet of Jesus. And so she didn't need something to wipe it away. But she sees her Lord disrespected and embarrassingly dirty. And so she's moved with compassion and, and, and humility to serve him. She comes humbly before the Lord. So despite the culture and all the personal pressures, this woman kneels over Jesus' feet and becomes overwhelmed with emotion. I believe in that moment, on her own side, dealing with her own situation, I believe she saw the ugliness of her many sins juxtaposed over and against the goodness and the beauty and the grace that she had experienced from the Lord. She saw that Jesus was being mistreated, and so she moves to anoint him and to wash him and to clean him. And she uses her hair. She responded humbly to Jesus. And that's how we have to humble ourselves before the Lord. You see, God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Lastly, she responded completely. She brings an alabaster flask of ointment. What does that mean? It means this woman brought the most expensive possession she possessed. She brought her best. It means she gave her all to him. There was no half-hearted step toward Jesus. No, she was all in. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We learned from her that when we respond to Jesus' invitation, we must give ourselves completely to him and hold nothing back. She's all in. She responds Honestly, boldly, humbly, and she responds completely. That's the right way we should respond to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Simon gives us a different picture. Simon gives us the picture of how to wrongly respond to Jesus. Simon, Luke tells us, was a Pharisee. That means he was a religious leader in the nation of Israel. He was a religious leader in that community they were in. It means he was a teacher of the law. It means he was one whom the people respected and, and someone that the people followed. Unlike the woman who recognized her sin and need, Simon, however, believed he needed nothing from Jesus. He, he didn't recognize Jesus offering him anything of significance. And so how did Simon wrongly respond to Jesus? Four adverbs describe it. First of all, he responded cynically. He says to himself, if this man were a prophet, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. He would know that she is a sinner. He would know that she, he should have nothing to do with her. He would know, based on the law, that her touching him would make him unclean. He must not be a prophet. He must not be what everybody's talking about. He must not be the, the king of the Jews, the Messiah who's come incarnate. He must not be anyone of significance. 
But most of the common people believe the other thing. They believe Jesus to be a great prophet. They believe Jesus to be a miracle worker. They believe Jesus to be someone who had been sent from God. Why did they believe that? Well, we've already seen it in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus cured diseases. Jesus gave sight back to those who were blind. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus clearly is not just another prophet. Jesus clearly is someone who's been sent from God, someone of significance, someone you should look at, someone you should follow, someone even you should worship. And yet Simon cynically disregarded all the evidence. Now, I don't know exactly how this story fits into the timeline of what's going on as the gospels writers put their gospels together that was not always high on the priority list it's high on our priority list as western americans we always want to tell the story within the chronological order but the way luke has orchestrated this it could be that they're in the city or the town of nain right what we've looked at a few weeks ago it could be that they're back in capernaum but in all of these places we know one thing jesus did miraculous things. Evidence to prove he is the Son of God. And yet Simon responded cynically. You see, for us today, we dare not ever respond to Jesus with cynicism. We dare not, <coughs> excuse me, we dare not think of Jesus, look at Jesus, respond to Jesus with a statement of, well, if Jesus really were God, then why dot, dot, dot. Why am I going through what I'm going through? Why am I experiencing turmoil? Why did I get that bad doctor's report? Why do I have cancer now? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why don't I have enough money in the bank? Why is our government falling apart or seemingly falling apart at times? Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? We never should look at Jesus and respond to Jesus with the cynicism that so many others in our culture have. We don't have to, and this is what I've been trying to explain and teach in our Wednesday night class on suffering. We don't have to know the why, but we do know the who. We know who Jesus is. We know he's good. We know he's sovereign. We know he's faithful. We know he's true. We know he's working on our behalf. We know he is victor. That sin and the pain and the suffering and all the things that come because of sin at one point in the future will be put down. And Jesus will be declared the victor. Right? We don't know the why, but we know the who. Simon responded cynically. Secondly, he responded religiously. Simon invited Jesus to his house for religious reasons. He was simply going through the motions of what it meant to be a good Jew, what it meant to be a good Pharisee. On the Sabbath, when there's a visiting rabbi, what do you do? You invite him to dinner. It's just like Southern Baptists. Hey, you want to come over for fried chicken? You're the visiting preacher? Or let's go to Moe's because my kids can eat free on a Sunday afternoon. Amen? We've been there the last three Sundays. We're not going today. Love it, but I've had my fill for a while. Invite him over for an evening meal. I want you to think about how easy it is for us to respond religiously to Jesus. How easy is it for us to just go through the motions? My prayer is that everything the Lord spoke in your heart during the summit conference doesn't fall on deaf ears and unwilling feet to walk it out. And so we dare not just respond religiously, oh, let's pray through this, but we have no intention to really to walk that out in our life. That's what Simon's doing here. He's showing a level of hospitality toward Jesus, even though we've already seen that he doesn't even extend the courtesies that should have been there, but at least he got the invitation. 
He's just doing enough to play the part. That's not the right way to respond to Jesus. Thirdly, he responded self-righteously. Jesus here presents a provoking parable to Simon about forgiveness. He talks about two people, who, two debtors who had been forgiven of their debts. And he asked the question, who's going who's to love him more? Who's going to express gratitude more? And Simon, who doesn't know that Jesus has read his thoughts, right? He's probably, he's probably made this statement about, cynically about who Jesus is to himself. And yet Jesus can read our minds. And he extends this short parable. And Simon answers, of course, the, the answer is it's the one who's been forgiven the most. And Jesus responds, yes, he loves much because he's been forgiven much, but the one who's been forgiven little loves little. In other words, Simon, the reason you don't recognize me is because you think you don't need me. The reason you're not worshiping me, the reason you're not doing exactly what this sinful woman is doing is because you think you're better than her. In fact, Simon, you think you're better than me. Because you don't think you have a need in your life. Because you're a Pharisee. You know the law. I bet Jesus, if he was me, would take it a step further and be like, dude, you don't even keep what you're... The motions you're jumping through, the hoops you're jumping through, you're not even really working those things out. I would be a whole lot more crass, but that's because I'm not Jesus. And I'm sinful, and he's not. But he's pointing out here the self-righteousness of this man, the moral superiority of this man, when in fact he was not morally superior to anyone. The sinful woman who's a prostitute and a person of the streets is no more sinful than that self-righteous Pharisee who stood there in his robes and taught the law to the people. Both of them were dead in their sins and trespasses. Both of them were separated from God. Both of them are far from God, as Ephesians 2 tells us, as I read earlier. But Jesus stands there to welcome both kinds to himself. Those who are far, he desires to draw and to bring near. And yet he responded self-righteously. I have no need of that. Today we dare not dismiss our own sin or compare ourselves to anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. When you stand before him one day, he won't, you won't stand there and he won't ask you a question about whether or not your sins uh, are, are worse than another person's or your righteousness better than another person's, you will stand there and you will be judged and gauged based on one standard, the standard of Jesus Christ, right? I don't measure myself up against you and you should not measure yourself up against me. We measure ourselves against the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been expressed to us through this right here. We dare not be self-righteous. Fourthly and lastly, he responded half-heartedly. You see, the sinful woman was all in. But self-righteousness is always behind the half-hearted response. Simon here invited Jesus to his home for a meal, but he did not invite the Lord for the purpose of getting to know him. At best, he was to uphold his religious status among the people. At worst, it was to malign the Lord in front of the people. I would probably, if you pushed me in a corner, say it was the latter because of all of the courtesies he omitted. But we can easily see that this is a half-hearted thing. 
Jesus, why don't you come to my house? Man, we'll have a good meal, yada, yada, yada. He did not want Jesus to come there so he could learn about Jesus, ultimately learning about himself. No, he's just going through the motions because, again, self-righteously, he thought he had no needs in his life. And for us today, hey, I want you to hear this. Attending church is never an adequate response to Jesus. Now, it's, it's important, and the Lord would want you to be in the Lord's, amongst the Lord's people. I think it's vitally, or, or vitally important to your walk with Christ, but it's not enough. See, what I mean by that is this. You can sit in this worship service Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. You can attend and even participate in a small group Sunday after Sunday. You can gather with other Christians and do all of the things religiously that we can do, but never actually take a step to know Jesus and allow yourself to be known by him. It's like you probably heard the preacher um, illustration before. You can go sit in your garage all day long and all night, and you're never going to turn into a car. You're just slipping on the grease from when the car was in there last time. What happens is when we come and we're amongst the church, we need to have a desire to respond to the Lord the way the sinful woman did, humbly, boldly, honestly, completely, and not allow ourselves to respond like this cynical self-righteous, half-hearted, judgmental Pharisee. Instead, we should surrender to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. William Patton McKay was raised in a home that believed the gospel. He was raised by a mama who pointed him to Jesus. And I'm sure there were times as a mom concerned for her son where she's spending much time on her knees, time crying out to the Lord for his soul. There, there's no doubt that she taught him the Bible. You see, even le when he left for the university, this mama continued to point him to Christ. She did all that she could to set her son up to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but she could not respond for him. She could only point him in the direction. William Patton McKay had to come to a place in his own life, in his own mind, and in his own heart where he responded to the gospel himself. And for so, so many years, his response was at best religious, but more than likely, it was cynical and self-righteous. He lived for himself. He lived for the pleasures of this world. He lived for, for the moment and today, never with an eye about tomorrow. Dr. McKay had not thought about, what, about God in a long time until that day when he met that dying man who the only thing he wanted in this life as he was facing death's door was to hold on to his Bible. It was to hold on to the living word of God. And once he saw that man's Bible was the very Bible he had pawned way back when, he began, I'm sure, to reflect upon the stories his mama told him. As they walked through the scriptures, as they attended church together, as his mom had poured into his life, all of those things came back to mind as he read those verses of scripture she had noted. He had cynically run from Jesus his entire life, but now he couldn't help but turn to the Lord and to run to him. I believe William Patton McKay penned this hymn in response to the great forgiveness He'd experience. You see, Jesus says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And William McKay in that moment began to understand, man, I have lived a self-centered, self-righteous, careless life. I've lived for everything this world has to offer, and I am empty, and I am spent. And yet Jesus has come to me, 
and he's changed my life. And he responds in gratitude. He pins this beautiful, wonderful, gospel-centered hymn. I wonder this morning, which group do you fall into? Do you fall into the group of the Simon Pharisee type person, the pre-Christ William McKay type of category where you are cynical toward Jesus and you're self-righteous toward Jesus and you're half-hearted toward Jesus? Or do you fit into the camp of this sinful woman of the city and post-Christ William McKay. You've come to a place in your life where you understand, man, I am sinful, I am broken, I am undone, I'm under the judgment of God, and, and, and yet God is loving toward me, and he's gracious toward me, and he wants to know me, and in response to that, I want to know him too, and I want to walk in fellowship with him. I want to put aside the things of this world, and I want to just walk with Jesus. I want to worship him. I want to celebrate him. I want to talk about him to others. Which one are you falling in today? Are you running from Jesus or are you running toward Jesus? I wonder, how do you need to respond to his calling on your life? You know, the Bible tells us good news. The Bible tells us that we have been made by God, for God. The Bible tells us that we have a design in our life that is not by accident, it's by purpose. And that purpose is that the Lord would know you and you would know him. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is all about. And yet, in the midst of all that, sin has fractured that and broken that. And that's evident in all of our lives, as we've seen in this text even this morning. And so in our brokenness, we're running from God to anything and everything else that can try to fill the hole that only God can fill himself. And so we're lost and helpless, and we don't care anything about it. And yet God chases us down. You think it's by accident? That's the beauty of this story. That's why I wanted to share this story as an illustration to kind of prop up this beautiful picture of this woman anointing Jesus' feet. Is it by accident that a man he's supposed to be serving has the very Bible that he pawned in a pawn shop? No, it's not by accident. God did a miracle to bring this man to a place where he could see with his own eyes. And God has done that in us. Many of us in this room, you've come to a place in your life where you saw and you sensed Jesus chasing you down and you believe the gospel and all that Jesus has done for you, his death, his burial and resurrection, that he would die in your place so that you could be forgiven, that your self-righteousness was never enough, but his righteousness is now yours through the cross. And today you're on the, on the, on the road to pursue and to recover all that the God, God of heaven would want for your life. But some of you in this room may be watching us online. That's not the story of your life. You're the Pharisee. Maybe not so much so that you're inviting Jesus and you're making fun of him, but you've just never ran to Jesus. You've never turned toward him. You're still walking at a distance. And Jesus is saying, won't you come home today? Won't you come home? How do we respond? Two ways, rightly or wrongly. Let's respond rightly today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you we thank you for the picture in this story of a woman who's broken, who has been just devastated by the choices in her life, social outcasts, people would turn away from her on the streets. Her only friends were the other people who were in her similar lifestyle. Lord, she was an outcast even in her own family. And surely, 
She never thought that God could or even would love her until she met Jesus. And that changed everything. God, I thank you for the story of William McKay, the penner of this beautiful hymn that we have today. This story is so similar. Growing up in a Christian home with a godly mom, and yet he turned his back on all of that. But you never turned your back on him. You gave him opportunities. You pursued him. And through the testimony of a dying man and the beautiful, gracious gift of a mom, he sees with fresh eyes what he's really like. And he sees what Jesus is really like. This morning, Lord, many of us in this room, maybe those watching us today, we've been in a similar situation where we have seen Jesus and ourselves and we've been drawn to trust him by faith. God, there's others today that need to do that, even this morning. Father, I pray that we would respond rightly, that we would respond in the right manner, with humility and with honesty. God, that we would boldly come before you, that we would believe and take your word for what it is, when you say, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That we would believe that, that you want us, you desire us to come to you. And you will give us rest. That you will create peace in our life. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Peace within ourselves. Lord, help us to respond that way. As those who need to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. Help us to respond that way as Christians who... Walk at a guilty distance. Help us to respond, Lord, that way as those who last week you birthed in our hearts a desire to, to take a step forward or to lay down a sin or an encumbrance or whatever it is, but we've said yes to something. Help us, Lord, to continue to say yes to that and to not be cynical and not to be self-righteous and not to go through the motions. So I pray for this time of response as we sing this song, may we respond to Jesus Christ.